Romans 3.26 says, It was to show his, that is God's, righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, the first time I listened to the Quran translated into English, I heard this phrase over and over again, in the name of Allah, the most gracious, the most merciful. Well, Allah may be gracious and merciful, but is he just? In the last three episodes, I've focused on the glory of God. Now, I've stated before that the glory of God is the display of his attributes. God is revealing himself to us when we see his glory. So today, we will look at God's glory in how he shows mercy and grace to sinners, yet maintains his holiness and righteousness. Uh, Now, what is righteousness? The, the main section of scripture that I've been using in these episodes is Romans 3, 23 through 26. So let me read those again. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So these verses give us a defense of God's glory, a defense of his perfect holiness and righteousness, even in the way that he forgives sin. Now, when I use this word righteous, uh, righteousness, it's in referring to God, it has to do with his perfect justice. So, in fact, in, in the original language in the New Testament, the Greek word for just and righteous are the same word, dikaios. And so, justified, righteousness, all of those are are linked by like the same root word in the Greek language. So God's righteousness can be thought of as his perfect justice. A just judge is one who is impartial and consistent in their judgments. Nobody can bribe them. Nobody is treated unfairly. The same crime always gets the same punishment. So this would be a just judge. Now, because we are made in the image of God, we also desire justice, this type of perfect justice. We universally hate when a guilty person is allowed to go free because maybe the judge was bribed or because of political favors, things like that. The reason we hate this as humans is because we are made in God's image. But because of sin, we are unrighteous, and sometimes that unrighteousness shows up in our courtrooms. Now, here's the here's the problem that I want to address today. If God is the perfect judge, he sees all sin, he knows all things, even the intentions of man's heart, then we stand before God as guilty sinners, and how can a judge who is perfectly righteous and perfectly just allow a sinner to go free? How is this not unjust on God's part? Proverbs 17, 15 says this, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. So the the problem that I want to focus on this week, it deals with the first part of that verse. He who justifies the wicked 
and then it, it ends with, is an abomination to the Lord. He who justifies the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. Now, are, are we as sinners wicked? Yes, of course we are. Does God justify sinners? Yes, we are justified by God, by God through uh, by His grace through faith. So let me make that make sure I'm clear there. Not everyone who ever lived is justified by God. It is through faith alone that one is justified, and this is an act of God's grace. So without faith, you are lost. You will be punished by God for your sin in hell for all eternity. Okay, now back to our verse, Proverbs 17, 15. He who justifies the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. So again, are we as sinners wicked? Yes. Does God justify sinners? Yes. So how is this not a problem? How is God not being inconsistent with the the very Bible that he gave us? Paul Washer, in an illustration, uh, well, in a sermon on Romans 3 and talking about propitiation, which we're going to get into in just a second, he uses this illustration. He said, imagine I come home and I see a murderer standing over my family. He's just killed um, killed my family, and I see you know, the blood still dripping off the knife. Um, and so, so later on, you go to court. And the judge looks at this murderer and says, I am the most gracious. I am the most merciful judge in all of the land. Therefore, you are forgiven. You are free to go. So he, he completely pardons this murderer. Well, that judge, you, he may can say that he is merciful and he is gracious, but he is not a just and righteous judge because you as the victim, you, you would be you know screaming out to every media outlet possible. You'd be writing to anybody with any authority uh, condemning this judge as being unjust. You were not given the justice that you deserved. So that's the, uh, the Paul Washer illustration there to try to drive home this point. And so I want to jump back to Allah here. I talked about the Quran and how the basically every chapter except the ninth in the Quran starts with, in the name of Allah, the most gracious, the most merciful. Um, now, this, is, this idea is covered in more detail in James White's book, What Every Christian Needs to Know About the Quran, and, and it's in a section entitled Forgiveness and God's Holy Nature. So that, that's where a lot of this, the following information comes from. Um, so with Allah, basically you could put Allah in the in the judgment seat of this Paul Washer illustration. Allah says, I am the most gracious, I am the most merciful. And so he he forgives, okay? But is Allah just and righteous in the way that, that Allah forgives sin? And so as a Christian, I would say absolutely not. And that's one of the distinguishing things between Allah and the God of the Bible. So in Islam, some may say that Allah just forgives sin because he's all-powerful. He can, he can do what he wants. Um, so that's, that's one way that, that maybe Muslims would say that he can forgive sin. Um, but if, if you just do whatever you he, he in a way, he can't do that because it would be inconsistent with what the Quran says is Allah's very own nature, that he is also holy. And so, um, so you can't just willy-nilly forgive sin. Um, and so, th- the other way that it is that is mentioned in Islam, the way that Allah forgives sin, is He takes the sin off of Muslims and places that sin on Jews and Christians. 
And so this also is unjust of Allah. Now, the the second one I mentioned there is not in the Quran. It's in the Hadith, which are like recorded sayings from some of the early leaders in Islam. And so it's, I just wanted to make you aware that it's not actually in the Quran that um, that Allah takes the sin from Muslims and places it on Jews and Christians. But that's that's one of the ways that has been explained of how Allah forgives this sin. Where does this punishment for sin go to? If Allah forgives it and he's also holy, that sin has to be dealt with in, in a way. And in in Islam, there's no <laughs> there's no way around it. I think this is a, a huge point um, in in kind of the breakdown that Allah is not actually the the true the one true God. Now, Christians, you may you know if you've never thought about this before, uh, Christians may would give you the same answer. How does God forgive sin? And you may think, well, He's God. He can just He can do what He wants. He's God. Uh, but again, He's God's not going to be inconsistent with his very own nature and character. Um, the other the other answer you may hear from Christians is, well, God chooses to forget about it. Um, Isaiah 43, 25 may be cited here. It says, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. So God, you know, casts our sin as far as the east is from the west. He, he forgets our sins. He remembers them no more. Well, you know, God doesn't actually forget anything. So when the Bible tells us that God does not remember our sins anymore, it's a way of saying that God will will no longer condemn us on the grounds of that sin. So how does God justify us? How does he consider us righteous? Last episode, I talked about justification a lot. When God justifies us, he is declaring us legally righteous. In his divine courtroom, he he looks at us and says, you are legally righteous. And and not only uh, innocent of sin, but you actually are are perfectly righteous in my sight. So how does God do that? And the answer is propitiation. So Romans 3, 23 through 25a, I know I've read this passage a bunch, but it is so important. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, two words that I have to explain here are propitiation, and then the other one is expiation. Now, expiation is not found in this passage, uh, although some some theologians uh, want to, uh, instead of using the word propitiation, they want to use the word expiation, and, and I'll explain why. So, these two terms, expiation, the, the prefix ex at the beginning, it means out of or from. And so expiation removes something. And in scripture, it is used to talk about removing guilt. So this is done by paying a ransom or offering an atonement. So certainly expiation is is a biblical concept. Jesus' death on the cross was the atoning sacrifice for our sin. It removed our sin guilt. Now, the, the word propitiation... The prefix pro means for. So propitiation is something which satisfies or appeases. That is is a huge concept there. Propitiation is something which satisfies or appeases. So in Christianity, 
propitiation refers to God's wrath being satisfied or appeased in the death of Jesus Christ. So expiation is is impersonal and propitiation is personal. If you've ever watched Judge Judy, after she makes a decision, they will interview the plaintiff and the defendant. So if the criminal pays the fine or does whatever Judge Judy rules should be done, then the crime has technically been expiated. It has been paid for. It has been atoned for, okay? But sometimes they interview the plaintiff and the plaintiff is unhappy with Judge Judy's decision. So the crime has been expiated, but the offended party is unsatisfied. The offended party has not been propitiated. Remember, propitiation means uh, to satisfy or, or to appease, okay? So a propitiation would be something which pays for the crime and satisfies the offended party. And so in the case of our sin, who is the offended party? Your sin is against God. So in this courtroom, you have sinned against the judge, all right? So God himself puts forward his son, Jesus Christ, as the propitiation for our sin. God, the one from whom the standard of justice and righteousness comes, is satisfied by the death of his only begotten son. One of my favorite songs says this, In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. Of course, that song is called In Christ Alone. And it's an extremely uh, popular song, but some Christian groups exclude it from their hymnals because of the main lyric I pointed out, the wrath of God was satisfied. They want to change it to the love of God was magnified, right? Now, many people have a problem with the idea of God being angry or full of wrath, And if they have this problem, and if you have this problem, you just need to read your Bible. A.W. Pink is a theologian. He said there are more references in the Bible to the anger, fury, and wrath of God than there are to his love and tenderness. A lot of time we formulate this our own idea of God instead of seeing what God reveals about himself in Scripture. When we formulate our own concept, our own idea of God, this is idolatry. Now, God is angry with our sin. His wrath is upon us as sinners. The Bible calls sinners children of wrath in Ephesians 2. In Psalm 5.5, it says, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes, that is, before God's eyes. It says, You, God, hate all evildoers. In John 3.36, Jesus says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It, the, the, think about that. The wrath of God remains on him. It means it's, it's already on you. You are under, if you are in sin and not justified by faith, you, the wrath of God is on you at this very moment. God is angry with you. God, you could say, going back to Psalm 5, 5, he hates all evildoers. In, in Romans 2, 8, the Bible says, But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey 
unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So when we talk about being saved as Christians, what are we saved from? We are not saved from Satan and his pitchfork. We are not saved from our own self-doubt. I, I, you know, I remember a, several years ago seeing a Hallmark Christmas movie, and it had these this this guy came, you know he came back and started working at a church and he said this at the end he said i found my faith again but his faith was like in his own in himself in his ability to um to be i think he was like a musician or something and he found his faith in himself again um and you know just ridiculous um, so you're not saved from Satan. You're not saved from your own self-doubt. You are saved from the wrath of God. Now, another false view of God is that God the Father, or, or maybe the God of the Old Testament, is this angry, vindictive God. But Jesus comes, and Jesus is the one who brings love and forgiveness. And so the God of the Old Testament just hates all sin, but Jesus, he just comes and he's he's affirming and accepting of everybody. He, he just loves. Jesus is just full of love. Well, this too is wildly unbiblical. The Son, Jesus Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That's Hebrews 1.3. In John 1.18, we are told that Jesus explains God the Father to us. Jesus has, quote, made him known. Um, and so, so Jesus shows us the, the character of his own Father, God the Father. In John, so God the Father is loving. He, he's not, you know, you can't split up God the Father as this angry God and Jesus as the one who loves. No, they, they, Jesus tells us about God the Father. And so in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So God the Father is loving. Um, and, and then on the, the flip side of that, people say, oh, Jesus is just full of love. He, Jesus just loves. Well, Jesus hates sin and has wrath towards sin. In Revelation 6, sinners are crying out in, in, in verse, uh, verses 16 and 17. They say, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. Now, the lamb is clearly Jesus. So, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? So, there, the, these, these people are crying out in their sin. They're saying, hide us. You know, rocks fall on us. Hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. So, God hates sin, and it is, is, it is his passion to rid the earth of it. God hates sin so much that he destroyed the earth with water in the days of Noah. But this did not rid the earth of sin because God is also, he also showed mercy there. God is merciful and gracious. He preserved Noah and his family, but they continued to sin. So how is God going to completely deal with sin, yet also show that he is uh, gracious and merciful? Sin is contrary to God's nature. He is 100% completely opposed to it. So, however, God's hatred, his anger, his wrath, it is completely right. It, it, is, it is good hatred. It is good wrath. So sometimes we may hate a person, but it's not for any good reason. A, a lot of times we hate out of jealousy. We wish we had what they have, uh, but God's hatred for sin is not this way. He is the creator of all things. He has no needs. 
He hates sin because it is against his nature and character. He hates lying because he is perfectly truthful. He hates adultery because he is perfectly faithful. Now, because he is perfectly holy and righteous, God will perfectly punish all sin. He is the perfect judge. I know I've used perfect a lot there, and that's on purpose. Nothing is forgotten in God's sight. No sin goes unnoticed. Nothing is done in secret, and God's anger burns against those who sin. John MacArthur says, God's anger is not capricious, irrational rage, but is the only response that a holy God could have toward evil. God could not be holy and not be angry at evil. Holiness cannot tolerate unholiness. A.W. Tozer said, Not only is it right for God to, to display anger against sin, I find it impossible to understand how he could do otherwise. And then one other quote by J.I. Packer in, in the book Knowing God. He says, God is not... God is not just unless he inflicts upon all sin and wrongdoing the penalty it deserves. While we may think it severe, we desperately need God's wrath, a holy and just response to evil, to restore the broken world in which we live. Now, this is the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. So on that cross, Jesus took the punishment for our sin. He paid our penalty for sin. So our sin was removed. It was expiated. Not only that, God was satisfied by the sacrifice of Jesus. God's wrath was propitiated. So he is no longer angry at those for whom Christ died. God is satisfied that justice was carried out. And, and this is so crucial because this separates the false god of Islam, that is Allah, from the true god of the Bible, Yahweh. The Quran boasts of Allah's grace and mercy. It again says he is the most gracious and the most merciful. The problem is that when Allah is merciful, he is unjust. Allah is not righteous. Sin against Allah is just ignored in some cases. But if Allah was truly holy, his own nature could not ignore the sins against him. In the gospel, we see the glory of God. We see that Yahweh, the God of the Bible, is truly holy and righteous and just and gracious and merciful. And he is all of these in perfection. There is harmony of all of these attributes of God, and none are in conflict with one another. This is the glory of God in the gospel, where we see all of these attributes on display. Let me read it again, because as I've been explaining this, hopefully this passage of scripture will become more and more clear to you. Romans 3, 23 through 26, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So God justifies us because of his grace, and we are justified through faith in Jesus Christ. We can be justified because of the propitiation of Jesus Christ. 
This is the only way. It's the only way that God can can be holy and just and righteous and also gracious and merciful. It is through the propitiation. Jesus is the only way. So the question to ask Muslims is not, does Allah forgive sin, but rather, how does Allah forgive sin? See, Allah cannot be just and the justifier like God can. And and again, that's Romans 3, 26. Jesus, as our propitiation, is the only way we can know for sure that we have peace with God. We can know that his justice has been satisfied, and we are no longer children of wrath, but we are now children of God because we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. See, in in Islam, you're just hoping that Allah forgives you, but you have no grounds for that forgiveness. In Christianity, the the grounds, our assurance that we are forgiven is through our faith in Jesus Christ, who is the propitiation. He satisfies the wrath of God, and we can stand in that. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God, peace from his wrath. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John 1, 9, you've you've probably heard this verse a bunch, but now it, it has a little bit deeper meaning, I bet. It says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful. So we think about that. If we confess our sins, God will always forgive us, right? We, we confess our sins to, Jesus, to, to God, he will forgive us. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful, listen to this, and just. I, I you know, that we just kind of skip over that a bunch of times. He is faithful and and he is also just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why is he just? Because he has properly, according to his own holiness and righteousness and standards of justice, he has dealt with our sin completely through our propitiation, Jesus Christ. So God is faithful. He will forgive us if we confess our sins to him, but he's also just in doing that. And so that gives us confidence as believers. So some practical application. Uh, Think about forgiveness here. If God is satisfied in in forgiveness, if, if God is propitiated, if he is satisfied that justice has been done, then why aren't we? Why why are we slow to forgive? And and I think it's because we don't see the cross for what it truly is. So we we fail to see the immensity of our own sin. Uh, you know, we sometimes we don't forgive others, and we're not we're not realizing that we are sinners. Oftentimes, we will not forgive people of sinning, and we ourselves commit the very same type of sin. Um, and so we're we're so much easier on ourselves. So we need to see the immensity of our own sin. We also need to comprehend the the humility of Jesus Christ. And there I'm talking about the humiliation of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so sometimes when when we like let's let's let me give you an, an illustration. If someone commits just a horrible sin against you, they they a, a crime against you, just they're they're terrible to you. And then you find out later that they became a Christian. You know, why, why would you struggle to forgive them? 
But, you know, so, so, you know, sometimes it's easy to say, well, for the non-Christian, if they sin against you, it's like, well, God is the ultimate judge. God's going to judge them one day. And so, so in a way you're like, okay, well, I can forgive them because God's going to, God's going to punish them one day. But what if now they're justified and they no longer are on the, uh, under the wrath of God for that sin against you? Why should we forgive them? It's easy to think, well, they, they got off easy. You know, God, God's not going to punish them for that sin. Here's what I'm saying. If, if you could see the humiliation that Jesus Christ went to on the cross, if you could, not, and I'm not, when I say see, I'm not talking about see the nails going through his hands and the, the physical um, torture on the cross. I'm talking about spiritually what is happening at that moment as God pours out his wrath towards sin on, on Jesus Christ. If, if we could comprehend that in a deeper way, then we would be satisfied that justice has been accomplished. We would, we would be satisfied with God's judgment. Why? Because God is the perfect judge and he is satisfied that justice is done. And so the, the, the more we understand the cross and how God is both um, gracious and merciful, but he's also just and holy and righteous, then I, I think one way that that applies to our lives is we understand forgiveness a little bit better, and, and hopefully we, we apply that in our own lives. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And so I, I think that verse definitely applies to what we've talked about today. As God in Christ forgave you. Now, again, the purpose of all of these, these recent episodes has been to magnify the glory of God. And so it, uh, in, in Romans 3, verses 25 and 26, I've read this passage a bunch of times, but it says this was to show God's righteousness. So Paul is like giving a, a defense here. He's saying that the, the cross is to show God's righteousness, um, and, and that's a display of his attributes, the, the, the way that, that his holiness and his justice and his righteousness and also his grace and mercy uh, come together. That is for the glory of God. That displays the glory of God. Now, in closing, I love good old-fashioned church hymns, and one of my favorites is Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. The chorus goes like this, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Now, a, a group called Sovereign Grace Music, they took this chorus and they added a few other verses to it. Uh, so it is different from the original hymn, but listen to verse 2. It says, Turn your eyes to the hillside where justice and mercy embraced. There the Son of God gave his life for us, and our measureless debt was erased. I love that line. What beautiful lyrics. Where justice and mercy embraced. There on the hillside. There where Jesus was crucified. So the next thing that I want to go to in the, in the next episode is why did it have to be the Son of God? Why is Jesus the only way? So next week, we will continue to deepen our understanding of the glory of God in the gospel. John 14, 6 
Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me.